Hey, good morning again. For those of you that maybe snuck in, I'm an 11, I'm an 11 o'clocker myself, which means I'm an 11 15er. Uh, welcome. My name's Steve Van Poulen, one of the pastors here, and have the privilege today to get into God's Word together, talk a little bit about fantastic subjects of pride and humility. Um, but I want to start this morning and our time in the Word with a powerful picture. It's actually beyond, I mean, that, that thing that we felt just now when we were uh, singing, This is Our God. Um, and so here's how I want to start. If you have been a part of Crossroads, you've been a part of this body of Christ since the beginning, which was 2004. So if you've been here since 2004, uh, and don't worry, I'm not singling you out. There'll be other people standing with you. But if you've been a part of the body this long, would you stand for me? Would you stand if you've been a part? I think most of the original folks are in the 9 a.m. There's no doubt about it. Wheelhouse. There we go. Awesome. No, no, stay standing. Stay standing. So how about 10 years or more? 10 years or more, you've been a part of Crossroads in one fashion or another. There we go. 10 years or more. Thank you for that. How about five years or more? You've been a part of Crossroads roughly five years or more. God's called you into this body, shape and mold us consistently. Okay, two years or more. Two years or more. Okay. And then everybody else should be standing on this next one, less than two years, unless you don't want to stand, which is okay. If you don't want to stand, I'm good with that. Less than two years. <clears throat> I wanted to start here because this picture, I have not lost awe in it. In, uh, God's had me in this role for about 10 years now, and I've not lost awe in the fact that he puts a specific group of people in a specific space in a specific time to do specific things. There are purposes. There's things that he wants to do in and through us in this place now in this church. And I love who he brings to the body and changes it constantly. It's amazing. So now here's what I want you to do now. Close your eyes. And I want you to begin to imagine hundreds of other churches around West Michigan that are gathered right now or have gathered this morning, or gathered online. Maybe you could think of churches that you've been a part of or your family or friends are a part of. Uh, begin to pray for them. Begin to live into this reality that we are united in Christ as a family. Take a step out and uh, think about other states. Maybe you're from another state. I lived in Illinois for a long time, part of a church called Suburban Life Community Church. I'm thinking of them right now. Think of other churches, other states that you know are going through different things. Begin to let the Holy Spirit work on and uh, bring you into your connection to them, which is a part of our text today. Now let's take one step further out and go global. Begin to think about your brothers and sisters that are around the world. This family that you've been adopted into through Christ that you are not a, now a part of. With its amazing complexity and different nuances. 
different parts of the world that experience very different things. I think we can, uh, I would ask you, some of you to be praying silently for our brothers and sisters in Haiti right now who are literally sifting through the rubble of their lives, mourning thousands, the loss of life, tens of thousands displaced in need. Or our minds and hearts go to our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who are experiencing things that we can't imagine. Maybe a handful of us can based on experience, but persecution simply for calling on the name of Jesus for maybe having a Bible. They have the potential to lose their lives. Would you pray for God to show himself strong, to be comforter and healer? So we're just going to be quiet a second, expand it further out to all parts of the globe, everything that God says, this is mine. These are my image bearers. This is my creation. If you want to pray out loud, feel free. Otherwise, I just want to encourage you to, in silence, pray into this family and body of Christ around the world right now. Thank you for this reality that we so often kind of so often don't kind of think about this uh, connection that we have to other churches here in our city, here in our area, in our state, in our world. This uh, grand family, this uh, body of believers that uh, you've adopted us into. Thank you that we, uh, you've put us in this place <clears throat> to no credit of our own. Uh, you've chosen this time and this place for us. And so God, help us to be mindful of that and to live in it every day. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, don't sit. <clears throat> You'll have plenty of time to sit, don't worry. We like to stand for God's words and uh, sit for mine, so to speak. Uh, and again, it's just out of reverence these very words from God that we're reading. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter, and we're going to be uh, kind of starting in chapter 5. So 1 Peter 5, in the newer blue Bibles we have, that's page 983. I didn't get a chance to look at the older blue Bible and find out what page it is, but probably not too far from there. <clears throat> and we're going to start in verse 5 with the second sentence of that verse. <clears throat> All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, 
because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered a little while will himself restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Have a seat. So, I haven't preached at Crossroads in four years. Not sure how that bodes for all of you this morning, but we're going to do our best to spend some time in God's Word together. I know what it did in me as I was preparing is it made me grateful. It gave me a heart of gratitude for uh, those that preach and teach and spend time in God's Word to lead us along. And so, uh, this is my public thanks to Rod, uh, to Dan Mike, to Brian Robinson, to Tim Bassett, uh, to Nathan English, to other guest preachers we have had, Dr. Stoll, who's a regular part. Thank you for the ways that you've stewarded God's word to lead this body. Forever grateful. I was uh, about 24 hours ago, I got extremely nervous. I was really good until about 24 hours ago. Uh, but then, I, yeah, I was like, okay, how, how are we going to do this? And I was grateful. I had sent an email earlier in the week to a number of uh, friends of mine that are pastors here locally. And uh, one of them sent me a text. And he, he just simply said, Steve, I know you to love God. I know you to love his word. And I know you to love people. So you should be good. I said, okay. That did it for me. So um, that's kind of how God's wired me and how I come this morning. And when, when Rod had asked me, told, asked, I think it was asked, uh, one of those two, that I was going to be uh, preaching and teaching on pride and humility, um, kind of unexplainably tears welled up in me. And I've spent most of my time from then till really just 24, 36 hours ago Processing why, thinking through what God might have for us. I think it's because pride is a really good friend. It's an old friend of mine. Pride is something I'm very familiar with. When I think of pride, <clears throat> I think of this movie. Uh, it's a movie called A Beautiful Mind, if you're familiar with it. Uh, the star, I think, is Russell Crowe. Anyways, in the story, the story is about uh, John Nash, who's a brilliant mathematician, Nobel Peace Prize winner, and a man who has a mental illness. He suffers with the mental illness of schizophrenia. Toward the end of the movie, as he's coming out of the Nobel Peace Prize ceremony, it's portrayed that as he walks out, he looks to his right, and he can see the three people that uh, his whole life, as he's suffered with schizophrenia, have been the subject of his hallucinations. And he can literally still see them. His wife, in fact, asks, do you see them? He says, yep, sure do. But he's developed this ability to see them, you know, realize that they're not there, and ignore them. Pride's like that for me. Pride's literally on the stage with me. And I can't. Every time I say this, I can't stop from doing this, so I'm sorry. But... Pride is very personal. 
And based on the vast personal experience that I have with it, I've got one goal today. And it's pretty simple. My goal is to convince you that God knows better for you than you know for yourself. And then to preach that to myself. So thank you for that. Amen. In doing so, we're going to take like a 5,000-foot investigation of 1 Peter, one of the books of our New Testament, and then we're also going to look at some other various stories to complement it. If you were following along as we read, you would know that our passage is at the very end of 1 Peter. But what we're going to do is work our way backwards, investigating a center portion, and then ending with the beginning. So in broad strokes... The end is going to help us with the what of pride and humility. The middle portion of Peter's letter is going to help us with the how of humility. And then we're going to end with the beginning of the letter, which is going to help us with the why. So let's start with the what. Two parts to the what discussion. The first is a little bit about the letter that our passage comes from, and then specifically pride and humility. So briefly, the letter, because it's really important whenever you kind of jump into God's word like we are. This morning, we have to kind of orient ourselves to where we are, who's writing things, who they're writing to, what the situation is. And so um, this is, of course, Peter writing. He identifies himself. Uh, Peter is Jesus' disciple. If you haven't been in the Gospels lately... um, all four of them, you know, they, they tell us quite a bit about Peter. We, we can learn quite a bit about who he is, uh, which is always kind of helpful when you read someone and what they're writing. He's writing this letter from the city of Rome, and he's writing it to Christians. <clears throat> they're the all of you that our text begins with in verse 5. We know they're Christians because Peter calls them elect, chosen by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus. Verses like that that always like, I don't know about you, but I'll read verses like that. I could spend a week just thinking about those four things. Elect, chosen by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, obedient to Jesus. Geographically speaking, uh, all these people that Peter's writing to are to the east, spread out in Galatia, Bithynia, Pontus, Cappadocia, and Asia. Uh, These regions that he's writing to comprise kind of the majority of modern-day Turkey, particularly in the north. And uh, many of you know Rod, uh, his wife Libby, a group from Crossroads, and others just recently got back from Turkey and were kind of immersed in this first-century learning. Anyways, most of these background details can be found in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. These Christians abroad are experiencing difficulties, trials, and are suffering for being Christians. Kind of the primary source of their suffering that Peter's writing to is essentially verbal abuse. They're taking a verbal beating for being Christians, for this strange set of beliefs that they have, for these kind of odd late-night dinner parties that they seem to host with various types of people. Lots of rumors about their customs and being blamed for breaking down society, for going against the cultural norms. Sounds familiar. Suffice it to say that the hermeneutic here, which is the only $5 seminary word you're going to get out of me this morning, 
the idea that we understand the current, the existing context to apply it to today, it's directly applicable. We can, we can say this text, we can kind of read it and go, okay, we can, we can apply it right to our lives. We don't have to uh, do too much guesswork here. I was speaking to someone actually this past week that was on the trip to Turkey, and she said that one of her key takeaways was that the sins of the first century look an awful lot like the sins of today. And that maybe the times are not quite as extraordinary as we sometimes think they are. These are things we've been struggling with for a long time, and God has a lot to say about them. Okay, so that's the basic orientation in 1 Peter. So now let's get into the what of pride and humility. Chapter 5, verse 5. All of you clothe yourselves with humility because God opposes the proud. If we stop right there, whether you've come here this morning or you're watching online and you're a follower of Christ or not, perhaps we can at least agree that it would be important to know a little bit about something that God says he opposes, that he actually stands in opposition to. Kind of some important information, I think. Based on my personal experience and understanding scripture, and I've liked that we've had the freedom uh, as teachers in this series to kind of cultivate our own definitions of these things. So here's how I define pride. Pride is the belief in self. It's the orientation around one individual, and that's me, and the belief that I know best for me. This idea of um, knowing best for me is all throughout Scripture. And uh, I assembled just kind of five of these things that seem to apply. Sometimes this can just look like willful rejection. This can look like we know what to do and we just choose not to do it. This pops up several places in Scripture. Probably first and foremost in what we talked about ahead of time, which is Genesis 3. Adam and Eve's decision to disobey God directly because they were convinced, or rather they were deceived, that they should know everything that God knows. They were envious of what God didn't give them. And you can read about it. Second, emotion, right? Emotion all the time leads us into kind of what we think is best for us, centering on ourselves. Consider the story that appears right after Genesis 3 of Cain and Abel. Right away, we learn that emotion can get the better of us. Cain and Abel bring offerings to God. Abel's is accepted. Cain's is not. Out of anger, Cain kills his brother. Or a classic, and maybe one of mine that I really relate to, is complacency. Complacency, laziness, right? Kind of we figure it out eventually and just kind of figure out what's best for us. I think we can see this most powerfully if we look at David, who Dan preached on when he talked about lust a couple of weeks ago. It's arguable that pride is what put David on the roof of his palace instead of being off with his army. This story spans from 1 Samuel 16 to 2 Samuel 11. You can read and kind of watch David's slow march. 
or ignorance. Fourth, ignorance. Consider Nebuchadnezzar in his greed, conquering nations, enslaving them to expand his own. You can read a little bit about that in Daniel 1 through 4. And you'll learn that God humbles Nebuchadnezzar in, some pretty, in a pretty unique way um, because of his pride. And finally, permissiveness. Permissiveness. Another one of the kind of ways in which we deceive ourselves into pride. And I think uh, probably the most powerful story that came to my mind, at least, was Solomon. If you think about Solomon, <clears throat> in all his splendor and wisdom that produced pride, leading him straight into gluttony. Seven years to build the temple to the Lord, but it gives this detail that it took 13 for him to complete his. Of course, go on to learn about Solomon's wives and his horses. So on reflection, if we look at all of these, which lead us up to today, it seems that pride is the tipping point to so many of the vices that we've looked at. It's why pride is often referred to, and I think reasonably so, as the root of all evil. Whether one has pride in their heart and what one believes about themselves is typically the difference. That's typically the difference maker between envy and contentment between anger and patience, between greed and generosity, lust and chastity, gluttony and temperance. Either in a very direct sense or indirect, in each of these stories, and maybe already you've amassed some of your own, we decide to go our own way. These characters decided to go their own way. So maybe that's just an even simpler definition of pride. Pride is going our own way. It's actually the immediate context for um, Paul, or excuse me, Peter, and what he's quoting when he's writing to the Christians in the first century. He's, his text, or what he's bringing to them, comes from Proverbs 3. It's verse 34. Talking to God, uh, talking of God, rather, the writer of Proverbs says, he mocks proud mockers. He's admonishing his son to not choose any of the ways of the proud and not to envy them. If you back up a little bit in Proverbs 3, you'll find these commands that the writer is giving to his son as advice. Lean not on your own understanding. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Look at all these stories and maybe consider some of our own. I think pride kind of has three things that it does in us. Pride's first move is to separate us from God. That's pride's first move. Going our own way separates us from God, literally puts us in opposition to him and his ways when we choose our own ways. Second move, once pride has us out on our own, pride separates us from others. In fact, this in some sense is what culture rewards and demands. Pride is highly valued and exalted. Pride is the call sign of individuality. When you do a little bit of studying, if you just look at a dictionary and look up pride and humility, you're going to find that pride 
is cast in the positive and humility is cast in the negative. But we have to use, uh, as Dr. Stoll would put it, that divine spatula. You remember that analogy? I thought that was also awesome. Only Dr. Stoll could do that one. We flip it on its head, right, and suggest that pride is the negative and humility is the positive. I spent the first part of uh, my vocation, not everybody knows this about me, but I had a first vocation before God called me into this work. Uh, I spent many years in sales. Sales is a breeding ground for pride. Right? Amen. Learn that lesson. Um, Here's some of the things, right? This is how it separates us from others. It's the idea uh, in sales, there's this idea of not leaving money on the table. That's a thing. There's uh, often a holding back of information to kind of make the sale. Sales and pride is all about comparison. We need to compare ourselves to each other, what one does or doesn't have. Which then, pride becomes about competition as sales is. Literally, the personality profiles that are out there look for this trait in people. It looks for pride and suggests that those people are going to be good salespeople. It's amazing what you can justify in the name of a commission. Sorry, salespeople. Just happens to be my background. Which this kind of illuminates the third thing that pride does, right? Pride separates us from God once we're out on our own. It separates us from others. And then pride deceives us into destroying each other. Then we've got this license all of a sudden. When we're separated from God and separated from others, I can draw back and I can look at somebody and I can blame them. I can disregard them. I can belittle them. I can devalue them. I can retaliate against them. I can defend what's mine. And the list goes on and on and on. This is what God opposes, the proud who go their own way. Okay, but what about humility? What about being humble? For those of you that were maybe betting about whether or not I would refer to our mission, vision, and values in my sermon today, if you were betting against me, you just lost. So, uh, our mission, vision, values. Uh, these are things that we have. This are you being a part of this church. You're kind of by default agreeing to these things. But I wanted to read, because we have one called humility, and I wanted to read it as we start talking about humility. This is what... Uh, This is our value, so this is Crossroads Bible Church value, uh, humble. We value humility because it's central to Jesus and the message of the gospel. We value humility in leadership, in our community, in our relationships, in our theology, in living out of our mission, in prayer, and even in our assessment of ourselves and others. We're convinced that humility is necessary for following Jesus. So as a church, we always want to demonstrate humility in our partnerships, in the way we think and implement strategy, and in our understanding and living out God's word. That's our value of humble. 
And I think we highlight humble because there's a lot more about pride that comes through understanding humility in the Bible than there is really about pride itself. Picking up where we were in our passage, 1 Peter 5, 5, says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Um, I like the ESV, NASB translation of this passage because it doesn't um, start a new sentence. It reads, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I like it because it leads into the how of humility almost right away. My sample definition, though, of humility that I came to during this whole thing and out of my experience, humility is adoption, submission, and commitment to God's ways. Humility is adoption, submission, and commitment to God's ways. So it starts with a condition of the heart, a belief that God knows better for us than we know for ourselves. It's a decision we make. That, of course, makes its way into action pretty quickly, um, into walking his ways. This is the idea of discipleship that Brian Robinson talked about yesterday, or yesterday, last week from Luke. And then finally, that commitment piece is a lifelong holding fast to and clinging to God and his ways. First Peter has a decent amount to say about this, but a couple of other stories that came quickly to mind in terms of walking in God's ways and how they are a reflection of humility. Um, I've always identified, and maybe some of you do too, I've always kind of identified with Abraham. Uh, one of the ways that God called me back to him was a sermon that I lived in uh, when I lived in Denver. And uh, the pastor that day happened to be preaching about Abraham. And there's this story in Abraham's life. Uh, He's traveling with his uh, nephew, Lot, and Lot gets kind of taken away. And Abraham, without hesitation, goes to rescue Lot. Every time I read that, I'm really, I think to myself, if I'm Abraham, and I've got, I think it's 318 trained men or some specific number, I might just let them go, you know, kind of stay in safety, make sure I stay back and hold the fort down. Um, But you don't even get a sense that Abraham hesitated to go and rescue his nephew, to go with his men, and uh, to some extent risk his life. But I think Abraham knew God's ways. I think he knew that that would be kind of what God wanted him to do. Of course, later we learn that Abraham... Uh, when he's asked to give up his son, his most treasured possession, Isaac, kind of does so. I'm sure he thought about it, but without much hesitation, he reasoned um, what God might be doing in his ways. Humble man. Or a person like Boaz, and there are more examples in Scripture. Boaz is in Ruth, and uh, Boaz knows God's ways, and so he uh, redeems and restores this family pretty cool. So they knew God's ways and chose to walk humbly in them. And this led me to a question years ago in my own life, which is, do I, did I really, do I really know God's ways? Do I know God's ways? 
So I get to ask all of us this morning, do we know God's ways? Do we know them? And it's an interesting question because you can go a lot of directions with it, but uh, I wrote down a list of things that when I'm asking that question, what we're not asking ourselves. We're not asking ourselves if we've gone to church our whole lives. What we're not asking ourselves is if for the most part we make good moral choices. We're not asking if we read all the right apologists or listen to all the great preachers. In some respects, and I want to be careful with this, we're not even asking the question of did we um, accept Jesus? And that partly that's my own story because I grew up in a faith tradition that said, profess your faith, you're good otherwise. I wasn't taught much about a relationship or uh, what it looked like to walk in his ways or why. So I'm not asking us or we're not asking ourselves if we think we're good with God. I really want us to consider whether we know his ways. Because I was in sales myself for many years, uh, obviously I identify with that quite a bit, so it's a little bit of my story. And uh, I have the opportunity then often to uh, walk with guys and do life together uh, that are in that spot. Started walking with a young man a couple years ago in his 30s, which is young to me these days. Um, and we were, I don't even remember how we got there, but we landed in this spot and uh, I felt prompted to ask him a question. I asked the question, how does God define success? How does God define success? Now, I'm not going to get into detail in terms of the answer that we came to. If you're interested in talking about that, I'd love to chat about it anytime. Suffice it to say, though, that he did not have a quick answer. And from my perspective, the answer that he brought back when we hung out a week later was wrong. I believe if we know God's ways, we'll have a solid sense for these kinds of questions even if we don't walk them out perfectly. And later on in the discussion, he admitted to me maybe his single biggest, well, I guess detriment or thing he lacked. He, he admitted to me that he had never taken the time to, to read the Bible all the way through. Now, I know that seems like a, such a simple thing, but statistics would suggest that we kind of don't. So, you know, I don't know about you, but you know, probably need a new one, but this one and or the apps on my phone, do we see this as God's word, the unveiling of his ways, the, the way in which we learn what it looks like to be human, what it looks like to walk after God? I want to encourage you to think of it that way because a commitment to knowing God's ways, it's humble in itself and in addition, it helps us to constantly reorient ourselves towards humility. Gives us the ability, like John Nash in A Beautiful Mind, to see pride. Perhaps some of these other vices and to realize them for the trap and the ripoff that they are. And if we're honest with each other, as I found myself being with myself in, my, um, in this season of my life that I'm kind of reflecting back on, if we don't know his ways, there's no way we have a chance to walk in them. 
knowing his ways and humility are directly linked. Psalm 25, eight to nine reads like this. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what's right and teaches them his way. This idea that as you humble yourselves to God and others, that he teaches you, it's a consistent thread throughout scripture. Jesus refers to it himself on several occasions for sure. Okay, but if we get back to the Christians that Peter is writing to, and what he suggests God's ways are in their situation, how does he call them to walk out humility? And it was at this point that I realized I was getting a little long in my sermon. But I see five things. And I really want to encourage you, ask you, beg you to do the simple thing either today, tomorrow, or the next day. I think within the three ne- next three days is a reasonable request. To, to sit down, find space with this letter. It's only five pages long in my Bible. Sit down with this letter. I think you're going to find reading it through in its entirety, maybe once or twice, it's going to speak a lot into what we're going through today. But I see five things in the center portion of this letter that are the how of walking out humility. And then we'll land on the why. Number one, pay attention. Pay attention. Verse five reads, be alert and of sober mind. And Peter then goes on to paraphrase God's speech to Cain, found in Genesis 4 regarding sin or the devil, it or him being ready to devour us. Peter also repeats the be alert and of sober mind in 4 verse 7. So it seems that Peter wants us to be aware of our surrounding. He wants us to know what's at stake and the urgency of what's happening. And I'm not sure... Not your eye, but I don't know if we truly live this way. I spend way too much of my time being complacent or distracted. Second item, and these are all these are all crucial. It's not like there's a list of priorities here. Love each other deeply. 122, 217, and 48 kind of talk about this specifically, but there are actually, I think, six references to this idea of loving each other. Unlike pride, humility is other-focused. It's full of otherness as opposed to selfishness. Peter knows what he's talking about with this stuff. There's a story that uh, Paul writes about in one of his letters where he and, he and Peter did a little clashing themselves where God actually, um, maybe through Paul, opposed Peter. Uh, Peter was, you know, Paul has this ministry, this call on God to reconcile Jews and Gentiles. And Peter is dining and hanging out, and it appears that Peter, uh, in the presence of Jews, is kind of separating himself from the Gentiles. And Paul opposes him to his face for it. Basically saying, look, man, that's not the gospel. The gospel brings us together. It doesn't pull us apart. So he knows what he's talking about. So he wants us to clothe ourselves with humility. Again, for me, it creates another connection to Proverbs 3 because the author of Proverbs tells his son to bind love and faithfulness around his neck. I love that picture. Like, wear it. Wear the way you love each other deeply. Peter talks about love covering a multitude of sins. 
God calls us through him to use our gifts, offer hospitality, be committed to doing good. This idea, a commitment to love each other deeply, unlocks something very powerful in us. At least it did in my own life. In a moment, in a small season of time, I began to see people, began to see the image in them. I began to see the wonder of creation and my connection to it all. So we have to love each other deeply. Third, the how of humility is suffer well. This is kind of after all the thrust of Peter's letter is instructing these Christians on how to live in a world that is increasingly hostile towards them. Peter's primary effort here throughout the letter is kind of to set up Jesus as the example. He's the pattern that we're to follow in what it looks like to suffer well. Have the same attitude, Peter says. That same attitude reminds me of Philippians 2 where Paul tells us to have the same mindset as Jesus. His mindset was to humble himself to the point of death on a cross. As I mentioned earlier, the, most, the ultimate picture of humility. Out of that, we get verses like considering others more important than ourselves. You begin to see this theme continue in scripture again and again. Peter goes on to highlight specifically that when Jesus had insults hurled at him, he didn't retaliate. He certainly could have. Certainly had all the knowledge. He didn't, though. It struck me again uh, in the thinking through where to base the text. I started reading Matthew again with a friend. And so I was reading Matthew and kind of Jesus' birth and the beginning and the genealogy and all that. You get to chapter 5, and so you, you kind of get this anticipation that Jesus is going to begin to preach and teach And I had just never seen it this way in the build-up to kind of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. This is uh, in 5 verses 1 to 11, I think it is. It's just all of the blessed be statements. And I think if you you sum them up, if you read them today, um, it's blessed are the humble. Out of that, he goes into kind of how that plays out in all areas of their lives. Next, live as aliens and foreigners. That's the fourth how of humility. But I left out a word there, live free as foreigners and aliens. As a chosen people, a nation of priests, 1 Peter 2.9, pursuing godliness in an other God-filled society. Plenty of gods, plenty of gods in the first century, plenty of gods today, different names, some of them the same. And maybe right now we're, we're developing a lot of uh, ability in worshiping this idol of self. So maybe I, we could say uh, God is calling us to pursue godliness in a self-filled society. This idea, what this means is that we stay in the thick of things. We don't retreat, but that we can be there humbly Because this is not our ultimate home, amen? And we can be there with no fear. And what this does, as we live as foreigners and aliens, is this draws us into each other. 
and helps envision our connection to each other. That's what verse five or five verse nine is talking about. And this should bring us great hope. Finally, how of humility. Respect everyone. Pretty simple statement. Chapter two, verse 17 reads, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Chapter three, verse 15. Kind of adding some detail to it. He says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the freedom for the hope that you have. Right? Fantastic verse. You would know that it doesn't end there. But, what does he say? Do this in gentleness and respect. And I think this is a huge opportunity for us right now. And I want to make sure this is a good time to bring up the distinction between pride and conviction. Because I think over the last couple of years, at least what I've seen, is I've seen many of us, if not all of us, kind of dial in what we believe about things. But again, if we kind of go our own way on this, which separates us from others, and then puts us in this spot where now I can tear somebody else to pieces for what they believe or what their perspective is. And I just want to say it's not God's way. We can talk about what we believe and the hope that we have, and I think it's important. But Peter is telling these Christians who are suffering in the first century, and therefore God is telling us to do these things with gentleness and respect. I've been struck uh, in reading through this again and again I know in my own life, I want God to give me some specifics. Like, can you tell me exactly what to do in this situation? Right? First century had plenty of this going on. Really cool. Um, You know, if you went into the marketplace, often you'd have to honor the gods. So what do you do if you're a Christian? Do you honor them? Do you not? Do you go into the marketplace? Do you not? Well, I got to be salt and light, so I got to go there. But I got to honor the gods. Can I do that? Or uh, often a lot of people worked, they were in guilds and they'd have these associations that they're a part of and there'd be these big parties that they do. Can I go? Can I not go? What if if I'm just there but I'm not participating? Is that cool? Um, And on and on, certainly. And, And you can apply the things that we have to decide what we do or don't do today. It's no different, really. But Peter foregoes the here's exactly what to do in this and that situation for a simple set of instructions. Live in the world as priests and aliens. Pay attention. Love each other deeply. Suffer well. And respect everyone. This is how humility is lived out, which receives grace, which receives protection. And what I think is super cool is it receives the further revelation of who God is and therefore who we are designed to be. Peter knew that faced with these realities, his readers would do one of three things, and I believe it's the same choice that we have today. We can retreat, and what I mean by retreat is 
we can kind of fold in on ourselves, right? Maybe people are familiar with the phrase, the holy huddle, right? We could just kind of put the fences up, gather together, retreat in together, like-mindedness, that kind of idea. We can recant, so we could just kind of pack it in. Done. It's too hard. I'm out of here, right? Peter talks a lot about it. Don't go back to that former way of life. There's something else. Or we can remain. I know, it's always ours, right? Retreat, recant, remain, which is what Peter is asking them to do. God's asking us to do in 5 verse 9. But why? And in this we find our conclusion. Why? Why? Back in the beginning of 1 Peter. So uh, grab your Bibles. I'm going to read this. I decided to do that because I just think it's so powerful. 1 Peter uh, 1, starting in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all of this, you greatly rejoice, though for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. They've come so that the proven genuineness of your faith this faith that's of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end results of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. Two things I want to highlight here in Christ. We've been born again, amen? Born again into a living hope. What does it produce? Tail end of this kind of same chunk of text. Inexpressible and glorious joy. Joy. Man, I. Sometimes I want to shout it from the rooftops. This thing that this does in us and can do through us. It's hard for me. I find I'm often in worship. I feel like my heart's going to jump out of my chest and I want to start dancing. You don't want to see that, which is pride. I think I shouldn't do it, but I kind of want to. And so I'm always jealous. I see people dancing. I love it. But there's this joy. I think often we spend too much time kind of focusing on the weight of these things. And it feels like we're weighed down. But Jesus says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I was telling Susie about the fact, uh, my, Susie's my wife, um, that I was going to land on joy. I said, I think I'm going to land on joy. I feel like, this feels like a good kind of why piece. And she's like, well, that's, that sounds great. You know, make sure Make sure when you tell them about joy, you know, it's not like, you know, just, woo, happy joy, right? You got to tell them it's like this thing that happens and, 
And it's just, it changes who you are and it, it allows you to see in color where you feel like you saw in black and white before. You know what I'm saying? It's like, and I said, inexpressible. And she's like, yeah, perfect. How about we add glorious? Inexpressible and glorious joy in Christ, born again. He highlights it again in the next chapter, this idea of being born again. So I want to invite the worship team to come up. That's the why, folks. It's the promises of Proverbs, the barns overflowing with wine, or barns overflowing, wine vats brimming over, freedom in Christ, life to the full. This is what humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand produces. And here's where it begins, which is kind of why I felt like God led us to start in that spot. We're going to kind of, I know we ended or we started with like this big, I lost my voice singing. But here's where it starts. It starts when we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. And so we're going to end kind of in, in some quieter time where we humble ourselves. We're going to end with some time in corporate prayer and confession together. And I just want to encourage you that if I've convinced you at all that God knows better for you than you know for yourselves, it might be a time this morning to humble yourselves before him, for you to participate in mikvah, wash yourself. Or um, maybe you need to go spend some time in prayer Or maybe for the first time, you want to identify with Jesus Christ. You want to taste of this inexpressible and glorious joy. And maybe you need to participate in communion as you do that. Or maybe you just need to stand in silence and sing. But I want to encourage you, whatever God leads you into this morning, that's the purpose you're here.